Welcome to AI Dialogues, a series by educational initiatives and organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders delving into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is a part of a special series recorded at the ASU GSV Summit 2022 and is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Mehnaz Charanya. Dr. Charanya is a senior research fellow at the Christensen Institute. Her work focuses on studying disruptive innovations in education that amplify equitable opportunities for students to achieve social and economic mobility. In her current role, she leverages her deep expertise in measurement and evaluation to drive innovation that expands students' social capital. One of those innovations that my team and I have been researching is this idea of social capital. Students access to an ability to mobilize relationships. And so when we really think about the purpose of schooling and if we believe the purpose is to increase students' social and economic mobility, then then we believe we need to be intervening at the level of not just what students know, but who students know, and that is social capital. At this point, it's it's extremely critical because what we're leaving we're leaving powerful relationships to chance to our students inherited network. So if you're born in a family that has access to a professional network, you might be okay when you need a tutor or during COVID you needed extra help. But if you didn't have that from birth, then you are already disadvantaged from day 1. And so if we truly want to level or even change the playing field and close this gap in opportunity, we need to be investing in in relationships as much as we do in how much our kids can read and write and do math. In this conversation, Pranav and Mehnaz discuss the idea of social capital and its impact on student learning and well-being. They also speak about bottom-up paths to scaling interventions and how best to evaluate the impact of educational interventions as they grow. Welcome, Menas. Yes, uh, thank you. To EI Dialogues, and um, really excited to do. I've been uh, reading uh, the newsletter with the, you know, very relevant articles that come on education and technology in education, and parents and other community members uh, and what roles they can play. Um, so, welcome to EI Dialogues. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a it's a privilege to be here. Uh, so you've been, you know, a big uh, advocate uh, for collaborative school networks uh, sourcing and uh, sharing the evidence in a bottom-up uh, manner to scale the best interventions. Um, what have the responses been from the school leaders who you've been talking to, uh, the administrators? Uh, what are they saying? Is there really a desire for collaborative uh, evidence generation, or does everybody want to do what they are doing and not uh, be very open about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what what I'm seeing, to be honest, is both excitement and some anxiety, right? And so at at the Clayton Christensen Institute, a lot of our work is around. understanding different innovative practices that can be implemented at schools to kind of upend the traditional model of schooling and and one of those innovations that my team and I have been researching is this idea of social capital 
students, students access to and ability to mobilize relationships. And so when we really think about the purpose of schooling, and if we believe the purpose is to increase students' social and economic mobility, then, then we believe we need to be intervening at the level of not just what students know, but who students know, and that is social capital. And so right now we're working with a set of what we call intermediaries um, who partner with districts to bring these social capital innovations to life. And so rather than handing to them best practices, which given where this stage of innovation is, we actually don't really have best practices, it's really important to take a bottom-up approach. Um, it gives us an opportunity to contextualize the designs to the context and to the students they're serving. And so that's the exciting part. And, and the anxiety provoking part is that there is not a best practice. So where folks want to kind of plug and, plug and play what works, we're building and learning what works in real time. And so that bottom up approach gives us insights into context and conditions that we, we don't always get when we take something off the shelf. If that makes sense. Tamina's, uh, what is social capital and how does one measure something as fuzzy as that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we define social capital as young people's access to and their ability to mobilize relationships as their needs and interests evolve. So a couple of years ago, I, I kind of looked back and started talking to different early innovators across K-12, post-secondary, and workforce development space who were purposely designing and measuring for social capital. And we try to put a bit of a, a scan around what measuring social capital could look like, because you're right, not only is it an innovation, it's not a tangible outcome like numeracy or literacy. Uh, so we think about social capital as both an asset and a skill, and therefore it should be measured as such. So we identified four dimensions when we think about social capital. One is the quantity, just how many people you know, but differentiating between what I mentioned, strong ties versus weak ties, knowing that our weak tie connections are the ones that tend to provide us new information and access to jobs. The second dimension is quality of relationships. This is an area where we can actually do more harm than good because we can put the wrong relationship within reach to a student and we know that can be damaging. So making sure that it's, it's one that's responsive to what young people need, there's attunement, there's trust, um, and to measure for that quality and not just how many people our kids know. The second one is structure of networks. Uh, big picture learning, which is an international uh, set of high schools that requires their graduates to have gone through at least one in internship, actually ask the internship site director, who today have you introduced your student to? So it's not just that one person our student knows, it's the network that that person is connected to that we have a responsibility for introducing to our student. And the fourth dimension, which to me is just extremely powerful because it brings the student's voice and agency into the equation, is young people's mindsets and ability to actually mobilize those relationships. And so as adults leading schools and districts, we can say we have all these adults ready to help our kids, but if our kids don't have the confidence or even the know-how of how to write a thank you email or say, I need help, who do I talk to? And you'll be surprised how many kids don't do that and don't know how to do that then we haven't fully maximized their, their potential of, of building social capital. That, that's very interesting. And I, you know, having worked for 20 years, I think some of all the things that you mentioned, I can see the importance of that. And, you know, I really hope that more of us think about this and, and create these opportunities for students to build their social capital, to cultivate it, to learn how to sort of grow it and uh, 
maybe come up with tools that allow us to measure it and benchmark it uh, across different places. Yeah, yeah, at this point, it's it's extremely critical because what we're leaving we're leaving powerful relationships to chance to our students' inherited network. So if you're born in a family that has access to a professional network, you might be okay when you need a tutor or during COVID you needed extra help. But if you didn't have that from birth, then you are already disadvantaged from day one. And so if we truly want to level or even change the playing field and close this gap in opportunity, we need to be investing in, in relationships as much as we do in how much our kids can read and write and do math. Absolutely. And have you seen this uh, work somewhere? Have you seen groups of students who are collaborating or building the social capital? Uh, have you seen this play out? And uh, if yes, like how can this be amplified? How can more people do this? How can this be codified and replicated? That is the million dollar question. Truly, this is this is what the scaling journey is all about. Uh, so for the last two years, my colleague Julia Freeland Fisher and I have been documenting our learnings on a website called Who You Know. And so we've been following a host of early innovators who are working with students um, and purposely designing for so student social capital and measuring for it. And so I consider these to be promising evidence where there's some indication that we're moving in the right direction. Uh, and we're using that as kind of the grounding to help these new innovators iterate and apply different practices to see what works, what doesn't. And so we do have a host of models um, on who you know.org case studies that we're using to to leverage to, to build more evidence. And and like, you know, I, I mean, this was one of those things when you're adults, when you're in the workplace, like the who you know is <laughs> how you get your we next We know that matters. <laughs> so, but this is about how do we take this to younger children in, in school and um, right. Is this about like access to role models uh, that we're talking about or community leaders that they see mm -hmm. and, and get inspired by and, and things of that nature? Yeah, that's a okay. really, really good question. And so when we say networks matter, it's more than a cliche. We all know when we think about how we got an internship or how we got a job or how we even learned about a career, it's often through a relationship. And so even actually down the street from here, Cajon Valley School District starts as early as kindergarten and, and using technology to actually expose students to different career options. And then they build on that over time where students begin to increase their sense of what's even possible and their possible selves. Over time, as students are in middle school, the goal becomes, are we connecting them to coaches and teachers and mentors? And as you get into high school and post-secondary spaces, it's more about, are we introducing them to internships and jobs? We want to make sure that students are not just graduating with high GPAs and a diploma, but they're actually graduating with a network that they can turn to as their needs and interests evolve. You know, so far, a lot of our work has been uh, of using technology for personalized learning where the software is adapting to a child's current knowledge state and helping them learn forward. But you're bringing a good point about how technology can be used for collaboration, for communication, for uh, building these social Absolutely. networks. Absolutely. So uh, what is the right form of technology that enables this? How should it be used uh, during school, after school, mm -hmm. uh, for the student or for the teacher? I uh, would love to hear. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Technology is, is very powerful. I've, I've done plenty of evaluations of technology, but if we really think about it, there are two things we typically use technology for. One is for knowledge transfer, and one is for assessing students. But if we think about the true power of technology, it, it also is in 
building connections and fostering connections that you can then take offline over time. Many people at this conference, for instance, never met in person. For three years, we've all been connecting on Zoom. And so, but we've been building these relationships that now we can actually deepen offline. And so from, from sociological research, we've learned about that not all relationships are the same. We have this idea, what we call strong ties, which are the relationships we have with people very close to us. My spouse, my kids, my, my parents, my best friends. These are people I often go to for care and provide care. They're the ones that I provide resources when they need them most. But what we also know is that there's strength in weak ties. Weak ties are more diverse, they're more plentiful, there, there are LinkedIn connections, there are people we don't talk to every day, but they're a powerful source of new information and ideas and exposure to jobs and internships. So EdTech can actually be a powerful pathway for expanding our weak tie connections. And what are some you know, successes and learnings from the social science uh, research and development network uh, that you've been doing? Yeah, we've, so as we've been digging into social capital, one of the aspects that really intrigues me at a personal level that I've been able to dig deeper is that our students have untapped relationships all around them. Regardless of your, your gender, your race, ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, whether you're rich or poor, we have all kids have one thing in common, their parents' love and their parents' motivation to see them be successful. That is, a, that is a source of social capital that we don't do justice to in our schools. We, we respond to the parents that might be the loudest or have ability to show up during the daytime. But we forget that if we can partner in two-way communication and build trust with all families, we have this reservoir of resources that students can access even outside the classroom. So one of the relationships, uh, sources of social capital that I've tried to look into is the power of families and the role of school family partnerships. That being said, we've also recognized the power of peers and alumni. So just really unpacking who are the relationships already within reach that we're not maximizing for our students that we can build together for. And this has probably gotten even more important in a pandemic setting, right? Where students were at home, they were spending greater time with their families, with right. their parents, but also their peers. What have been some uh, insights from that? What are some opportunities that have emerged that can continue even after when schools reopen? Right, so there was a model um, in California where now that ki kids, it was primarily for African-American and Latino students. So, and because students were not in school, this nonprofit began supporting the students and families together. And their focus was heavily on literacy. And because they were making such strides in helping these students stay up to speed with their reading, the, the LA school district decided to partner with them as students started coming back to school to be a resource for, for families because what this organization had done is build trust with families. So families were willing to be vulnerable with them and share their concerns and partner with them to make sure their children were being supported at home. And so there's a dozen examples like this where COVID created an opportunity to amplify the power of families, give them the tools and resources and trainings they needed. And now those families are, are better integrated within the school. I almost think this is like tilling the land, you know, before you start harvesting, like this to make the soil fertile, to make it uh, receptive to sort of, you know, instruction that you would get on science and math and literacy. but. Prior to that, you need to create a place where people feel they are heard, um, that they have the psychological safety to be able to mm -hmm. sort of go to school and learn 
um, thanks to interventions Absolutely. like these. Absolutely. And, yeah. and there's a lot of interventions that what we call like two-gen approaches, where they're working on kind of supporting the parents alongside the student. Talking Points, for example, is an edtech tool that actually translates into the family's native language and, and gives the parents or the caregiver tips and suggestions and feedback on how to support their child. Um, and so that's also been very helpful because when you are not a native English speaker and you see something coming to you in your language, you've already started building trust that way because you've come to them in, in a familiar way. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, logically speaking, parents are highly incentivized to take care of their children's education. Absolutely. Right? So the incentive systems are well designed uh, for them to take that interest, give that time. But I think what you're saying is if this is complemented with someone or some app or some technology telling them what to sort of what to focus or on. how to spend that time, what to focus on, how to say what to say, then um, then it, it gives them uh, meaning. Otherwise, it's more like, how was your day at school? Right. As opposed to sort of something. Right. This is especially true when we think about literacy and math. Uh, Springboard Collaborative is another example that comes to mind where the parents are coached in, in reading to their children. And what's beautiful about some of these interventions is that they actually outlast what they were designed to do. So it might be a six-week engagement with the parents, but the parent has built the muscle. They now know what it means to read with your child. They now understand what it means to ask thoughtful questions. And they can apply that to the sibling and the younger ones as they get older. And so you're actually helping generations build that muscle on how to support and effectively communicate in the house because we're not all socialized and taught to do that from day one. And has there been like active policy or political interest in uh, interventions like these? You know, are there models uh, that uh, can scale with high fidelity because what I sometimes find is interventions that are contingent on the quality of a human person to do it uh, tends to when scaled up lose some of the uh, fidelity uh, because right. of just, you know, larger numbers don't scale as well. Many of the ed tech tools that I mentioned like Talking Point, Springboard, even Family Engagement Lab, they have been commissioning a host of RCTs to better understand kind of what's how to codify their model so that they can expand and scale it. And then there is other work, for example, by Mentor International or, or Mentor in the U.S., where they are really looking to build relationship-centered schools. So what does it look like to center relationships in schools? And so I think we're starting to see that momentum where the research is translating to practice and practice is translating to policy. And so I, I don't think we can lose sight of evidence, but I do think we need to be more flexible about what evidence looks like. You don't like our cities very much. <laughs> Why would you say that? <laughs> is that true or false? <laughs> that is false. But I, I'll tell you why I often criticize RCTs. I have done dozens of RCTs. In my past life, I was in public health doing HIV AIDS research. It's, it's the gold standard. It's what we do. I did plenty of RCTs evaluating at tech tools, personalized learning, blended learning. Now that I'm in this space of trying to understand this very nascent innovation of centering students' relationships alongside numeracy and literacy, I am realizing that RCTs sometimes often actually do not give us the insights we want. Because by their nature, RCT controls for all the contextual variables that actually matter and us understanding who does this work for and under what condition. And so I think often as a field of education, we turn to RCTs too early. 
when we really need to be doing things like developmental evaluation and looking at the conditions of implementation and dosage to make sure, again, if, if our goal is equity, making sure every student is being supported in the way they need and not just the average student, we have to look at other methods of evaluating like developmental evaluations that allow us to focus on dosage and implementation and the contextual factors of students. RCTs essentially wipe that out. So if, you know, in the audience you have, let's say, a bunch of edtech entrepreneurs uh, who are trying to come up with new interventions, technology or non-tech in education, what would be the arc of, you know, evaluations that you would propose? Like, do they start somewhere, do something, and then ultimately end up at an RCT? Mm -hmm. What would that arc look like? Yeah, well, I can share from the lens of social capital scaling the arc that we, we are using. So... This first phase, we are using a developmental evaluation approach, and we're really focusing um, on the fact that we want to understand who does this work for and under what conditions. And so there is a lot of formative data being gathered, a lot of focus groups and interviews with, with students and with the adults to understand their experience. The, the process that gets us at the progress we're looking for. And so it is not by design an impact study. We know we won't see the changes right away, but we want to see what is, we want to get sharper about the hypotheses and what will it take to do this well and, and scale. And once we get insights through that developmental evaluation, in the edtech world, often we'll go into kind of the A-B testing mode, where now you have from 10 different hypotheses of how this can be done, developmental evaluation might get, get you to narrow in like three to four. So you can now do a host of A-B testing in a smarter way where you're seeing hints of, of promise. And from there, I think once you get really sharp, then we do the RCTs because it's too premature to, to say this is best practice. When For who, right? What students are benefiting? Is it the ones high socioeconomic status or low? Is it boys or girls? What, what race is, and so we just want to make sure we're being equitable in this work, which sometimes makes RCTs premature. Right. No, I agree that the timing of the RCT is very important. In our experience, we first started by serving, let's say, a set of private schools, and we also started serving government schools, where we realized that literacy is a prerequisite for math. So that's the time we first created our first language product was in Gujarati, uh, you know, because we found that these students were not able to read. And then we closely sat with students and observed how they were learning and kept iterating on the software uh, when we launched Great. a new language. Uh, we did this in after-school setting because we would be able to control the variables a lot better, the hardware, the internet, the staffing. Yeah. Um, after five years of iteration is when we sort of signed up for the first RCT, um, you know, and that gave us some visible insights. It's also told us that the dollar per child that we were operating at was not scalable. So then we went back inside the school system, giving up some of the freedom that we had, um, but ultimately learning at each stage. Um, yes. So yeah, I think yes. one can start at a very qualitative observation, you know, keep making improvements, uh, run some internal tests, uh, yeah. and then ultimately an external RCT eventually. Um, and that has been helpful to us in terms of scaling because now to participate in a development impact bond, to participate in more scale up, like our donors are demanding for efficacy. That level of evidence, and, and right. Helpful. And something you said actually I think is really, really important in that when we're assessing the ROI of, of a product or an approach, 
piggybacking that with an RCT makes good sense. Because when you're at the RCT stage, you already have really sharp hypotheses of what best practice looks like. And so to do the ROI on that makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then as I keep getting this question uh, on, you know, Pranav, how many millions of students are using MindSpark? And, you know, I go somewhere else and they tell me how many billions of questions have been served. And um, there's this obsession with scale that has been... Uh, unidimensionally defined as the number of students or beneficiaries that one has touched, right? But how should one think of scale? I mean, are there spectrums uh, here? Are there stages, you know? Um, is small beautiful? <laughs> is big bold? Uh, if you could help us uh, Yeah, that's a really, that. really great question. And I think the way we think about evaluation and there being a spectrum of developmental evaluation to RCTs, I think we need to be looking at scaling on a spectrum as well. If we go from zero to a million overnight, there's going to be a lot of valuable information lost and probably many missed opportunities. We may get to a million students, but we won't know if we're actually affecting those million students equitably. And so when we think about scale, for some, it might be about replicating best practices. For other schools, it might be about adapting or adopting a practice because it it doesn't exactly meet the context and the conditions or the demographics of the students they're serving. And so I think we do need to st start with the a smaller subset of students and get sharper if we need to adapt or adopt. And again, who is this working for and under what conditions? And as we get tighter and tighter on answering that, we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore the fact that we want to go for as many students as possible. Every single child should be supported and affected, but we just don't want to go to that, go from zero to a million overnight because we risk not knowing if we're actually meeting their needs in the way they need. I think this part about the scaling spectrum uh, and the spectrum on evaluation sort of uh, can be paired together, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you start out small, you measure a certain way, um, you take inputs from it to grow to the next level. And then at certain point, before you are scaling up uh, massively, maybe you want to you know, keep increasing your evaluation intensity in accordance with the number of students because ultimately this is someone's hard-earned money, whether it's coming right. from donors, whether it's coming from parents, whether it's coming from schools, whether from the government. Uh, I mean, all money is hard-earned. And so I think we owe it that we're spending it in the best possible way that we know that Absolutely. this creates impact. Yeah. And, and I think given the diversity of students that we serve, we may not just have one way of delivering a product or a service. And I think that's okay. I think if we recognize that when we have certain students at a low socioeconomic status who do struggle to have family members meet their needs at home because of competing demands, they might need a different dosage and a different experience set with that curriculum or ed tech tool or program versus another set of students who might have other partnerships or relationships accessible. And so to, to kind of have a set of if-thens for your tool or program become really critical. Sometimes we think there has to be one way, one best practice, scale to the max for everybody. And that we're seeing just doesn't work in, in an equitable way. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, it's hard because let's say if you are the superintendent of a school district here or in India, you are a principal secretary of education. Um, you want to cover every school, every child. You want to do it with the fewest uh, number of vendors, you want to do it with the least amount of variation because you're gunning for speed, right? So while I think everyone intellectually understands the one size doesn't fit all, um, 
I think from an execution perspective, people are always looking for one size fits all because it can sure. be done faster. I, yeah, uh, yeah, no, that is such a good point. And I, I worked in a very large school district um, in Atlanta, Georgia, actually, for many years overseeing evaluation, serving close to 100,000 students. And I think one of the smart things that was done in this district was they recognized one size does not fit all, but they also recognized they couldn't have the kitchen sink of tools available. And so I think they had to make some smart decisions about what set of tools they would make accessible to the schools and give the educators agency in determining the dosage and use of those five tools, for example, so they can personalize learning in a way that met each student's need. So I think there is a way to compromise and not having everything on the table, but having enough choice and voice at the table so that it can be adopted to meet student needs. And, and it can't always be done at the district level. I think here there had to be trust with the teachers, which enabled you to do that level of customization. Yeah, I like the idea of limited choice, um, but then leaving the choice of how much to use each of those options at the hands of the last one, because those are the people who understand the variation the best and can... Right. Uh, they are the experts that. in instruction, yes. so yes. We, we've seen that work quite well at that level. You know, you've been at ASU GSV for, for two days now. Um, what have you seen that has excited you, inspired you, scared you, <laughs> given you the hope? Uh, what has caught your attention? Yeah, a few things have caught my attention. I, it is so good to be here in person and, and hear this, this kind of multi-sector collaboration and conversation. Right. I think that's definitely one thing is that to, to do this, to do justice to what our students need, we need multi-sector collaboration. We need the funders and the intermediaries and the implementers at the table together and, and kind of co-conspiring to figure out how do we make sure we're not roadblocking each other's efforts, but facilitating what we know works. I think the other thing I have heard in a couple of sessions is this idea of the power of proximity, right? So when you're trying to design something that you think is important, do we have the actual end user at the table? giving us input and feedback along the way. And often all the things we do for students and the student is like nowhere on the table <laughs> to be found. Um, and so a big part of our social capital work, even how we think about measuring it is about students' mindsets and agency around maintaining and cultivating relationships. And so we strongly advocate that we not assume we as adults know what students need, but we ask them directly what they need and keep them in that conversation. So those are the two big things I would say are, have been pretty powerful. It was such a pleasure to have you, uh, Menas. Thank you so much for taking out the time uh, out of this fancy conference <laughs> at ASU GSV. Thank you. And uh, please continue writing. Um, we will read uh, your articles. And uh, thank you so much for coming. It's my privilege. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to EI Dialogues so you don't have to miss upcoming episodes. On our YouTube channel, you can view thematic videos on the role of technology in education, collaborating with governments, scaling interventions, and much more. Also visit our earlier conversation with Ratish Balakrishnan on how civil society organizations can achieve greater autonomy in their work and forge meaningful collaborations for social impact.